Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So you first, what is astonishing you? I don't know if you've heard this uh, great story out of Shreveport, Louisiana, about dads on duty. Have you oh, heard I this? have heard about that story. It's, it's a really great nice. story. So... For those who don't know, uh, there's a high school in Shreveport, Louisiana, that within three days had something like 23 kids arrested because of fights. And these local dads decided to do something about that and just started showing up. Well, of course, they got permission um, and they started showing up in the morning and throughout the day. All of them have jobs, and so they just take time out of their day. Some come during their lunch break, and I almost said they patrol the school, but that's not the right language. They they are in relationship with these kids, and there hasn't been a fight since, and they're, 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 their vibe is somewhere between that parental look that parents can give you and... Dad the dis- jokes. The disarming, <laughs> cheesy dad joke, right? And so um, I am so um, just inspired and um, my heart is warmed by these men because, you know, it just blows up the myth about black men and black dads not being involved in their kids' lives. It also blows up this myth that kids who are in underserved communities need um, officers with weapons. Mm -hmm. They need harsh punishments. No, they just need the presence of people who love them. And so I just love this story and have been astonished by it. Yeah, I think I I read that story and I like it. I don't love what some people are doing with it, just the ways that people are then retwisting it back to reinforce the same um, sort of demonic, destructive lies so that it gets used as like, see, when dads care, bad things don't happen. And I think, I mean, to your point, I, every child I know has a father and the majority of the children I know have fathers who want to be involved and want, I mean, the, you know, the vast, vast majority mm-hmm. that I know uh, want to be involved and want to participate. And often there are huge systemic reasons like, you know, the prison pipeline, like um, so, sort of some of the systemic injustices that um, divide families, um, particularly families of color, that then stop fathers from being able to be connected um, with their children in meaningful ways. And then we turn around and come up with a lazy reason, which is, oh, black men don't care about their children, which is just a lie. Um, so I, I don't like the way that people use this story to reinforce um, the idea that all our problems would just be solved if some people would care more and that there aren't, you know, because to me, um, what is helpful about 
some of the shifts that we've had to make in the pandemic world is it does allow more flexibility for some workers than they've previously had. Um, but also the reality is, and we, we find this a lot at the Grove and other places, like if you are working retail and you never have a consistent schedule from week to week, then it's hard for you to say, I'm going to come and tutor my kid at X time, or I'm going to show up for Y event. Because if you get scheduled to work, if you get called in, there are a lot of places now who will put you on call, which basically means you can't make any plans um, and you're not getting paid. But if they call you, you have to come in. So I just think we have a lot of, um, you know, huge systemic injustices like our entire criminal in injustice system when it comes often to people of color and some economic systems that really don't give people autonomy to live out their values. So, I mean, are there fathers who don't care about their children? For sure. And they are equally distributed um, across all ethnic backgrounds. Um, but I, I also just think it's tough because what everyone needs to see are more models of masculinity than the toxic um, models that our culture celebrates, which is either sort of the um, power, well, it's power. I mean, so it's either power as expressed through authority and money or power as expressed through violence and physical dominance, but like men are told that they only have value if they're powerful. And so, you know, it's, so that's, again, why a lot of young men trying to prove their worthiness and they're told that the only way they can do that is to win or to destroy, that's going to cause a problem. So it's helpful to have other models of masculinity in the school culture um, and just reinforcing to young people that there's intrinsic worth in being in relationship with them apart from what they're achieving or what awards they're winning or how they're viewed by their peers. But I just, you know, it just makes me sad that, um, that this is, that, that it's necessary. I'm grateful for the, the parents who are being disruptors. I'm honestly sad at the ways that, um, most of our education system on the ground is staffed by women and, you know, women showing up and doing this work day after day doesn't get the headlines. Um, and, you know, just, um, so it, it is a good story and I'm grateful for it. I am suspicious of the ways it's being picked up and the points it's being used to make in the larger culture. But I love the truth that people are living yeah, out. In my mind, I put this story alongside another story that's been on the news the past couple of days, and that is um, there have been a number of fights on flights across the country, especially, I think, Delta. And you see these adults, you know, throwing fists. And uh, one commentator said something like, you know, people are really stressed out in these times because of the pandemic and economics and other things. And so... Uh, part of that manifests as, um, you know, violence uh, in, in our culture. And I think, well, so there should be a lot of compassion for these kids who are in underserved right. com communities, who are stressed out, who don't have access to some of the resources that others have in terms of dealing with the stress of these times. And so to have these dads come in 
I saw an interview with uh, one girl at the school, Hispanic girl, and she said, she said they're so they're so goofy. They they do these dad jokes and they'll they'll say something like, "Oh, your shoes are untied," and she says, "I look down and my shoes are not untied." It just makes me laugh. And so they bring this this joy uh, to the school environment that I I, I think is just really powerful and beautiful and says something about. Um, the kind of joy and laughter and lightheartedness we all need in this time to help get us through, or else it's going to manifest as something dehumanizing and harm- harmful. Well, and I think um, it's it, it's part of um, looking like looking at a school through a deficit-based model or a, a strengths and assets-based model, right? And I think a lot of schools and kids. Um, internalize this, even if they're not consciously aware of it. You know, you go to a high poverty school, or you go to a D-rated school, or you go to a Title I school, and, you know, that school is defined and described by what's wrong with it. And so the idea that here are people coming in and saying, this is our school, we're ridiculously in charge of the culture here, and we see these children as more than problems to be controlled, but you know, but people with inherent worth that we want to interact with, not because anybody's paying us and not because we're trying to get them to do anything else. We're just trying to show up and, and be a presence. Like that's really beautiful. My youngest goes to an elementary school. And I love this, and it's been so fun. She goes to a different elementary school than my oldest did. And my oldest went to an elementary school that was just really um, high pressure, really competitive, a real scarcity mindset. I laugh looking back now because, you know, schools do character traits um, every month. And in my, my daughter's elementary school, even the character traits were a competition. So like they would once a month, like the character trait would be honesty or would be kindness. And they would bring all the kids into an assembly. And first they would acknowledge all the um, kids with straight A's and then all the kids with A's and B's. And then they would acknowledge the child in each class who had won the honesty award or won the kindness award. And I'm like, it's just so interesting now that I'm a step away, right? That like what's unlimited honesty, what's unlimited kindness, but like the whole mindset of the school that is unexamined is just like, no, no, no. It only matters if you win at it. And what does it say to a child who was trying to be kind all month? And then one of their peers gets acknowledged as the kindness winner, You'd be like, well, if I'm not going to win at kindness, I better. I mean, you know, so it's just this whole like competition. Uh, anyway, the school that she, my youngest goes to now just has a really different culture. And it very much intentionally um, is a culture of belonging and inclusion and joy. And um, I mean, down to like the sign when you come, if your kid is late, not that my kid is ever late, but at their old school, there was a sign out front that they would put out, like one of the sandwich boards, and it would say, it said in red, all caps, you are late. Proceed to the office to sign in your kid. And the school that she goes to now says, oops, you're late. Please come to the office so we can sign in your child, right? Just like a total, like difference. Same, yeah. same procedure, but just like a shame blame construct or a hey, we're all on the same team. Let's help you get to where you need to go. And anyway, all this is to say on Fridays at this school, every Friday morning, the dads come in and they do um, 
the drop off. So when you go through the drop off line, there's called men in Blythe and they wear these red shirts and they're just like, just doing this. Like, um, and they've been doing this for years. Um, they, you know, we're just playing music and waving at the kids and tell them wearing silly hats. And it just, it really like, I think it moves me more than it does for the kids to see, um, just to see these, uh, all these men and they're mostly black men again, just mm-hmm. busting that stereotype of coming and saying, I've got nothing more important to do, not just to drop off my kid, but to open the car doors for all of these other kids. I mean, it's just really beautiful. And it, makes me happy every Friday. And it's really fun to think about the power of showing up for someone when you don't have to be there, right? Like what it says to somebody when they know you don't have to interact with me, you don't have to know me, you don't have to show up in this space and you're choosing to be here. And that's a gift. And that really does shift, shift the culture and lift people's spirits. And we're all so hungry for connection and we're all so hungry to be defined not by the worst thing we've ever done or to feel like our belonging is contingent on our performance. Um, it just is really lovely and, and um, hopeful because connection is not a limited, scarce resource. Mm. And so it's helpful to look and say, okay, how can we continue to encourage people to let them know that? It just matters that we're, it doesn't just matter. It matters when we come together. There's power when we come together. There's goodness when we come together. Um, and and it is transformative, which of course is why we so deeply believe in gathering together on a Sunday morning because people say like, well, I can be with God anytime. I'm like you can, but what we can't be is together anytime. And to be fair, not all of us can be together on a Sunday morning. So that can't always be the end all be all time for all the reasons that we just acknowledged, but just the power of showing up for one another. I I don't think we always recognize, you know, I just had a thought. Uh, This makes me think about, you know, this whole conversation um, that has been happening for a long time about men and church and about why men don't show up um, in a lot of churches. And I'm thinking, "Hmm." it's because of the feminized Jesus. That's what some say, that that uh, that church isn't manly enough. But when I think about black dads, when I think about the black man that I know, most of them are really funny mm-hmm. and are very, um, like my dad is so corny that he's actually funny. Like that's his vibe. And now I'm starting to think, oh, Maybe men aren't showing up, showing up in church because church just isn't fun in a lot of cases. I want to I, I want to spend some time thinking about this. It's not that we need to become um, uh, alpha male church, right? Go out into the woods and you know kill things and roast meat and beat our chest. It's- I, I'm so sad that this is a pod audio podcast, so no one. I'm like hurting myself, rolling my eyes, and no one. Uh, can see that. Yes. Say more about how we don't have to become an alpha male church. <laughs> well, but that's the thinking of a lot of people that the whole Mark Driscoll, um, Mars Hill, like if the way to get men into the church is you've got to uh, move away from the feminization of the church and you've got to become alpha male church. That was their whole, um, their vibe, their philosophy. And 
way too many people still buy into that. Tell me more. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Tell me more about how the patriarchy is destructive. I'm sorry, I should stop being a jerk. Well, but one, but I no. think one way we can undermine that is joy. Like when when Agreed. when I think joy of, is subversive. When I think about black men, like in my home, I'm probably, you know. <laughs> the two roles are probably chief disciplinarian and chief comedian. That, that's just, that's my, my life in our home. Um, and I, I do both equally. And I think I bring the fun to our house. <laughs> my child may disagree. He may think my dad is just I'm more interested in what Han thinks, but uh, yes. Well, my wife probably thinks I'm way too goofy. But when I think about the black men that I know, they are all just a lot of fun. And, and maybe the way to, one way to subvert the patriarchy, especially in our churches, is, is an emphasis on fun and joy. Yeah, I, I do think that, I mean, what I said before, that authentic joy, not fake, like pretend, Correct. mask, you know, superficial but authentic joy is an act of, it's a subversive act. It's an act of resistance. It's a way of saying a joy that is grounded in reality. Um, so not a joy of denial, but a joy that is grounded in the reality of, of the tragic brokenness of the world and a joy that is grounded in the holy urgency to um, participate in the incoming kingdom a joy that's grounded in those two things is, I mean, whatever, it's the joy of our Lord, that's our strength. It is um, a witness to otherwise, to another way of being that um, is, is really important and prophetic. And, and, you know, I think real joy sort of inherently is an inherent testimony to the sovereignty and goodness of God that, you know, we see the situation on the ground. We know that in the natural sense, we're outnumbered and, you know, have no natural hope of influence or power or overcoming. And yet, because we rest in the sovereignty of a God, like there's a great story, and I'm sure I've even mentioned it on this podcast before, of um, um, the Clarence Jordan, um, when they started the Koinonia farm in uh, Georgia. Where's, uh, I forget Americas. where. Americas, Georgia. And so that this was a... Um, a farm that was founded by some Christians who wanted to live together in a multi-ethnic community, a black and white community, um, imperfectly, but sincerely. And when they moved in, um, they, some members of the clan showed up on the first night and said, um, you ought to know that we don't let the sun set on people like you in this town. And, Apparently, Clarence Jordan looked at them and said, well, I'm so pleased to meet you because I've been waiting my whole life for someone who can make the sun stand still. <laughs> I mean, you know, like that kind of joy of saying, like, I'm not I, I'm not fighting with your weapons. I'm not I'm not compromising. I'm not running from you. And also, like, I'm so at ease that. It, I genuinely can laugh. Whatever's coming 
at nightfall right now, I can just laugh at the fact that you actually don't have the power that you think you have. You might be able to run me out of town, but you can't make the sun stand still. And I, I think that that's a really a deep, deep wisdom and sort of the understanding that we don't control the future. So we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but we are free to rejoice in the goodness of gathering now um, and in the goodness of being together now in this moment um, is really powerful. So So what's astonishing you? Well, we had this really beautiful moment on Sunday after worship. Um, We did, well, obviously, you know, we did an All Saints Day worship too, um, which is really beautiful. And people brought in pictures of loved ones who had died and we kind of set up the windowsills and sort of altar-like moments. And it was fun just to see see whose pictures were there and the stories and it was really nice. And the sanctuary was um, prepared in a way that was really beautiful. Anyway, and afterwards we were gathering on the front lawn, a small group of people, because we're working through this um, emotionally healthy discipleship book, which has been really good um, so far. And we were talking about this first principle um, of healthy, emotionally healthy discipleship, um, which is the shorthand for it is you um, be before you do. And this idea that um, our goal um, in the in life with Christ is not to do things for Jesus and not to do ministry. It's to become, you know, to be born again, um, to be transformed um, by the love of God and the knowledge of God. Um, And so obviously, as we are shaped and formed by Jesus, that is going to dramatically change the way we live and and things will be done. Um, But God doesn't need us to run errands, right? And and the coming of the kingdom doesn't depend on us. And so we, in our Christian communities, don't want to order our life around what is a maybe benign lie, but a lie nonetheless that like we have to produce or achieve in order to, we will produce. Uh, we won't achieve ever as the world defines achieving, but we will produce fruit, but not because of our intentional efforts and certainly not because of our hurry or our religious enslavement, but because of who we are becoming by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is like the wind. Anyway, this idea that our community needs to be centered around not what we do, but on becoming and that our doing needs to come out of our being and our being transformed by God. And um, so we were just talking about that. And one of the principles that Um, the woman who was Kim Kyle, who was leading our small group was saying a mentor of hers had talked about mm, um, how a principle to a healthy spiritual community was to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. I think it was somebody famous who said that. Um, And just this idea that like, if you're in a hurry to do something, (laughs) then you're not about the kingdom because, um, becoming takes time. We've all read the Velveteen Rabbit. I mean, Mm -hmm. and like, even when transformation can come in an instant, like Saul turning to Paul, there's still a time of, of becoming and preparing wrapped around that. And also, you know, we're not, so we're not demigods. So we have time 
to see the people who are in front of us and we are have time to be in relationship with them and we're not using people to accomplish ends. Anyway, just the sheer goodness of loving people both for who they are and who they are becoming and in spite of you know just the worst things about us don't need to define us and our relationship with God and one another is sheer grace and um anyway the thing that astonished me this beautiful moment is we're sitting in the circle under the lawn it was cold and um one of the members of our church um is a man named Domingo and towards the end of sitting there he just said um I just want all of you in the circle to know that you don't have to do or prove anything to me. I am your friend. Wow. And it was just one of those really, I mean, it was just such a different way of saying I love you. I mean, it was such a different way of saying like, hey, you can rest in the safety and holiness of this connection, you, it doesn't have to be like a bank where you're always putting in deposits. It doesn't have to be something that you walk around worried that if you don't say the right thing, or if you don't respond to an email quick enough, or if you don't, but you know, like you, you can just rest knowing that I am your friend and you don't have to prove anything to me. And I was thinking both what a blessing it felt like to be part of the circle and receive that just a as a human and b as a pastor to know that they're just deeply wise frankly um people who are more spiritually mature than i am were saying like you don't have to dance all the time pastor right <laughs> it's mm-hmm. really nice um and also just like i mean it's back to the dads right like how does it change a community if you're in a space where people come and look you in the eye and saying like hey you don't have to prove anything to me like you, I mean, to borrow Brene Brown's words, you're inherently worthy of love and belonging. I see value in you. It doesn't increase on your best day. It doesn't decrease on your worst day. You don't have to prove anything to me. And you don't have to live in fear that I'm going to yank my love or your belonging away from you. So that was just a really, really mm. beautiful moment um, that I need to sit with some more and I need to think um, about how that can be emblematic for us as a community to be able to look one another in the eyes and say, like, I know you and I'm choosing to take a posture of honor and believing the best about you um, and just pouring into you. Yeah, a moment like that makes us realize how much even in the church our relationships are transactional. Yes. And mm-hmm. and I think that's the thing about being before doing is that God does not want a transactional relationship with us. And so there are things that we do that add value to our lives and deepen our connection with God, but those things don't make us more loved to God. And I think sometimes like that's just offensive for us caught in time and in our culture because we just sort of say like so are you just saying that someone who you know lives like mother Teresa, constantly sacrificing and at the end of the day a person who you know whatever 
drinks their life away or murders their neighbor or steals my, like in God's eyes, those people are equally loved. Like, how can that be? Like, we just think, well, if our choices don't earn us more love, then what's the point of our choices? And I think what we're trying to get people to see is in the kingdom of God, our choices matter, but they do not produce God's love for us. They don't. Um, but that's not so hard. Yeah, I think that also has an effect on even how the church does evangelism. Mm-hmm. Because my experience, especially in smaller congregations, our evangelism goes something like um, we need you to come to our church to help us with our stuff. It It is... It, it comes across as a kind of um, objectification of people. We, we need you to help us run our program, so come. And it's not about the value, the intrinsic value and worth of the person um, that we are seeking to be in a relationship with. Yeah, and I think just understanding, again, especially, you know, in a well-resourced church, it can become gross. People thinking like, we have so much, so are you worthy of us? Do you have anything to offer? Mm -hmm. And in a church that struggles with the lack of resource, um, we can so define ourselves by what we don't have that then we see outsiders as, you know, what can we get? How can they help us? What can we get out of them? Or how can we prove to them that that we're worthy of them? Instead of just saying like, no, we have gifts in our community and a mandate to give them away mm-hmm. without counting the cost in a non-transactional way. And whether you are the largest or the smallest church, you know, we, we have to stop worrying about people taking advantage of us and stop worrying about running out and look at the strengths in our community and, and decide how can we leverage them for the sake of people who aren't here yet not to grow our church, but to witness to the reality and the beauty of who Jesus is in the world. Um, and that's just a, like those dads showing up and saying, I'm, I'm here with my presence, not knowing what the result will be, but it's still worthy of me to show up and bear witness to all of these kids that you matter and this community matters and what you're doing matters. And, um, I want to come and bring my presence if that's all I, Mm -hmm. and that's not an all I have to give. That's an incredibly valuable gift. So every day when I drop my little one off at school, second grader, he asked me the same question. And like just recently I got what he was really asking every day. He asks me before he gets out of the car, daddy, what are we going to do when I get home after school? What are we going to do? And my transactional filter was hearing, what are you going to do for me when I get home? Like, mm-hmm. what, Dad, what are you, you going to do? And really, he's asking, how are we going to be together? How are we going to mm-hmm. hang out together? So today, he asked that question. And I said, well, I think we, we, we can um, throw the baseball in the backyard for a little while. And he was like, yeah, that sounds great. 
It's like just that simple, mm-hmm. this is how we're going to hang out together. Mm-hmm. That's all he's asking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's hard when you see yourself as constantly losing the battle with your to-do list. Like when mm-hmm. you feel such um, a level of guilt and pressure about what you have not yet accomplished and how you're not where you should be. Then when people are just asking you how you are, like this morning, Colin asked me, he's like, so what are you, what are you doing today? And then immediately he's like, I'm not saying you're not doing something. I'm just, and I thought like, (laughs) oh, I wonder how many times, you know, I've just bitten your head off because I feel like, oh, my job is more flexible and I'm likely to be in different places and I catch the slack with our kids who are out of school today, you know, I constantly feel the need to be like, okay, but I am working and here's what that looks like. And he's just saying, hey, how are you going to spend your day? Because you're a person I care about. I'm not yes, yes. trying to make you prove to me There's that no you're message working in that. hard enough. Yes. And, but, but we miss it mm-hmm. because we're looking for a trap and we're looking yes. for, oh my gosh, have I not done enough for my kid? Or, oh my gosh, does he not think I work all day? Instead of trusting and that so these this people member, love us. And this member of, of your congregation mm-hmm. was saying to everyone, listen, <laughs> you don't have to do that with me. Right. You can rest. That that work, that thing that we all do, trying to prove ourselves, earn our our way, right? Relax. You don't yeah. have to do that. I, that. That is a yeah. real gift. It's really powerful. I see you as worthy. Yeah. And that won't change. Yeah. That's yeah. a gift. Wow. And it should be what we find in every body of Christ, right? Yeah. It should be people who are saying, if you're walking through the doors, I see you as a person who is here. Um, at the at, on the assignment at the invitation of the Holy Spirit, and you are one who bears incredible gifts. And knowing you will be a, a priceless, spiritually rich opportunity for me to be blessed and to grow closer to Jesus. And whoever you are, you know you're wrapped in a mystery, but your presence is a gift. And I know that before I even know you. I know that. It reminds me of that place where Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my well, burden exactly is it. light. And I think so many religious institutions functioning in scarcity and in anxiety, we are scared to tell people the truth about that because we know that we can pull people as lovers and push people's buttons and manipulate them yeah. so much more powerfully through We have an guilt, empire shame, mind, mindset. We have an empire Bricks mindset. Bricks without straw, work harder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Prove your way. Right, right. And and you'll you'll do better and you'll care more if we make you feel implicitly or explicitly like your belonging is at stake. Mm-hmm. But if we tell people that they belong no matter what, they might just bring any old slop to the table. And the reality is that might be true for a time. Like we are so used to being pressured. We might not respect people who don't pressure us. But we have to play the long game in a Christian community and understand you might disrespect me for a time. You might miss it for a time. But when the other things have been exposed as, frankly, demonic, you'll look back and then maybe know the worth of what you couldn't see before. There's a sermon in that. That's that's good stuff. Wow. Well, what are you thinking about? I am thinking about... (laughs) <laughs> I am thinking about our gratitude challenge. 
but it's not what you think. I'm getting nervous. I'm no, no, you should not be nervous because this is really, this is really. No, because there are good. traitors in the midst of my community who have told me that they are going to submit to Derrida because, because. Oh, God bless the saints. <laughs> God bless those saints. Yeah. Bless you. Well, here's what I'm thinking about. Or, or yes, here's what I'm thinking about. Um, I decided that I, I really wanted to be serious about participating in this um, because all jokes and the competition aside, this is really an opportunity to do something um, that's very spiritually healthy. And so yesterday, the first day of November, I sat down with uh, my notebook and just started writing out the things that I was grateful for. And I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but I was surprised that when I finished, I felt a deep peace and joy. My mindset going into it was, okay, this is, this is a thing we're doing for the month of November. I want to participate. I want to model. Um, I also want to win. <laughs> but when I finished just writing out a few things and, and very simple things, um, that gratitude, it, it's like um, the, the, the discipline of being grateful or of naming things that you are grateful for provides the ground for peace and joy. And I was surprised by that yesterday. And so I'm, I'm committed to every day sitting down with a notebook and just writing out a few things, not just for the competition, but for my own soul in this season, because I have found myself in this season getting... Um, getting discouraged, getting a bit depressed, um, getting anxious. Um, I found myself in a place of real fatigue and being overwhelmed by what hasn't been done, um, what is broken and needs to be repaired. Uh, it's just so easy to keep those things at the forefront of my mind. And when I stop and think, um, you know, you know, my child is great and he's beautiful and he's funny and um, uh, just so many things. I'm like, oh, <laughs> uh, as hard as the season is, um, my life is really good and God is good. And I'm, it's so easy to, and I know this is so cheesy. Holy cow, this is so cheesy. But it really is easy to miss the simple things that are um, God's best gifts to us. Well, I, I think that part of the um, reason that we have difficulty submitting to a very accessible discipline like practicing gratitude intentionally is because of its very accessibility that again, like we're so formed by sort of eliteness in American culture, this idea that anyone can choose to be grateful. Um, we, we think, well, if anyone can do it, then I want to do something 
that only a few do. So I want to speak in tongues or I want to be prophetic or I want to have supernatural gifts of healing or I want to be the most sarcastic, acerbic, witty preacher in the world who can say things about God that no one else can understand. Like we, you know, there are just simple, inherently humbling practices that we feel like we want to grow beyond or graduate from and that, you know, is part of our pathology, I think. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think the being aware, and I think anybody who's a child who has children can understand how hard it is as a parent sometimes when you are fortunate enough to have um, the resources just sort of spiritually, emotionally, and materially to make your kids feel safe. Um, and when your kids really experience you as someone who is both willing and able to um, fulfill their requests, right? Which is a huge blessing mm -hmm. that our children can grow up not, you know, not anticipating a snake when they ask for an egg or whatever mm -hmm. the thing is. And, mm -hmm. and knowing, you know, that we often do have the ability to meet, we have both the ability and the desire to bless them and be good for them. Um, that's a huge blessing. And it also means often that our kids, um, they love us um, and they are grateful, but they also can just, you can give them one thing and then they'll turn around and immediately ask for the next thing, which can be really mm -hmm. um, frustrating as a parent to just feel like nothing is enough. And I mean, I don't know, like this is kind of maybe a backwards or unhelpful way backdoor into practicing gratitude, but I think that that must often be God's experience of me <laughs> that I acknowledge intellectually the goodness of God in my life and God's faithfulness and generosity and just the beautiful way that God has resourced me, but I don't, I choose not to dwell in it. And it's hard for me to be patient and wait for things to be resolved. Um, and so I think, you know, practicing gratitude is a way of just, I mean, it is for our sake, but it's also, you know, I don't want, I want to be, I want to grow in maturity past the childhood stage, right? Like I'm not mm. mad at my kids that that's their orientation. I'm really not. But I know that they would be happier and they would have, you know, more, they would have healthier expectations if they could, you know, walk in a thing 30 seconds after it happened, right? And I just think it's a function of childhood. And so it's appropriate for them, but I'm not a child. <laughs> and so I think, and particularly as people who, you know, have been entrusted with leadership in our communities, which I'm of the opinion that all of the people in our churches are leaders. Like we're all shaping culture, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we all are. Um, and certainly, you know, another way of looking at that would be sort of the priesthood of all believers. We're all in full-time ministry. We, that's, Pete Scazzaro says that a lot, um, that we need to understand that, that we, we're not, we are supposed to aspire to more than spiritual childhood our whole, our whole lives. Um, and so to be able to say, oh, I can't, I can't mature unless I practice gratitude. If, if I'm always just thinking about the next thing that I want or the next problem that I don't trust God to see me through, um, that's not spiritual maturity. And I, I think there are going to be seasons for sure 
where we just can't practice gratitude. And having a practice of gratitude doesn't pretend we don't need to be Pollyanna. Like we don't, and I mean, I actually think the movie Pollyanna is actually quite a helpful um, fable about gratitude because the whole point is she can genuinely be grateful until she can't. And there's a time of real um, dejection and rejection. And then her community rallies around her and pours into her and she comes to a place of being able to practice gratitude again. And so I'm not saying people need to be happy all the time, but I'm also saying if you can, I say this to my kids all the time. My kids are so lucky to have me. They're so lucky. <laughs> I'm just always saying like, if you can only be happy when you get what you want, when you want it exactly the way you want it, then you will never be happy. And Correct. so I need us spiritually, and by us I mean me, to be able to say there's real pain and brokenness and and I live with real fearfulness and anxiety. And most days I still can, if I choose, genuinely find plenty of reasons for my soul to bless the Lord. So it won't be always but that doesn't mean it should be never. Like I shouldn't be waiting for the mythological Mercury and retrograde, whatever kind of hooey to say like, okay, well today mm -hmm. I will walk in gratitude towards God. If you don't, then you don't. But most of us do, I think. And so to create a culture that says we want to normalize this because again, hyper-capitalism works on making people feel perpetually anxious and angry and unhappy. So when we practice gratitude um, and we have that kind of joy, it makes it easier for us to resist our impulses, which are most destructive. So, Wow. So what are you thinking about? Uh, I don't know. I, I'll just be somewhat, <laughs> um, I'll be the can't stop sharing girl a little bit and just say that, um, Yesterday was the one year anniversary of my dad's death. And mm. so it was also obviously All Saints Day. And um, mm. I just am trying to figure out how I feel and what it means and how to walk with this. And I think um, I, I both am really grateful and I'm sad. And I think anytime you love someone and they die, you just, you're not done with the relationship. And so, you know, I, I, I don't think that we talk about grief very much, um, even inside the church. And I, I am, I'm a person who, wholeheartedly believes in the resurrection of the saints, you know, except for the days when emotionally I don't, but theologically I do. Um, but I also know that sometimes that belief can be used as a way to shut people down and to sort of say like, well, because this relationship was a blessing and because you believe in the resurrection and because you were talking about someone who lived a long and richly blessed life. Then there's no grief work to do. Right. Then you sort of don't, 
I don't know. Like, it's just hard. And particularly when you're living in community with people who have suffered losses that are just so much more, you know, the loss of a child, the the loss of a loved one through murder. I, I mean, it's just really hard. Um, and in some ways, you know, it feels wrong and selfish to talk about it. Mm. And I also think, you know, because we don't, then that means that everybody who goes through this is sort of fumbling through it and figuring it out as they go. And I, I wish, I guess, that there was more, you know, when you become a parent, one of the things that I found really helpful is just all of these resources that exist to help you navigate something that is universal, which is having a child. Obviously, everyone doesn't have a child, but it is a universal experience. And grief is obviously so much more universal than becoming a parent. And yet, there's just not you know, there's just not a good place to tap into a conversation about that. It's, it's, if the conversation happens, it happens, you know, in special support groups and in, you know, in very, and so I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to navigate just, and also we've talked about this before and I, I mean, I'll probably, I'm not going to say much more, but like, it's weird to be a pastor, right? Because it's both, it's a, part of what anybody is bringing to a Christian community is their whole selves, no matter what the role is. Like we don't need people to show up and punch a clock and do a task and then punch out and, and bring their real lives somewhere else. Right. Like, so, so you, part of what you're offering is your whole real authentic self and your whole life lived experience. And also you have a role to play and it's not to center your own story at the center of your community. But, and just nuancing, like, what is, like, just what does that look like? What does that balance look like? What does it mean that, you know, I'm, I'm, I play the role of pastor in this community, which is a ministry role that is different, but equal to anybody else's role in the community. Um, but I also am a member in this community, right? And so it's just hard to figure out how much to share. And it's hard to figure out where it's appropriate to share that. And it's hard, um, you know, I do feel like it's helpful to the integrity and authenticity of the community to share my experience. And also at some point, except for when it's not and figuring that out is really hard. And I think we've talked before that I think too much of pastoring in the peace USA world. Like we often, I think unconsciously adopt the model of the professional. So the pastor is to the church, what the doctor is to the doctor's office, what the therapist is to the therapist's office. And so this is this kind of idea of like, well, we are pastors because we have degrees and because we've been through this special preparation process and we have more in common with other pastors than we do with, you know, other people who participate in the community. And I just think that's deeply un unbiblical and unhelpful and unhealthy. Um, so I really reject that, but it's also hard to know then what is the alternative. Mm -hmm. um, so and I think the struggle is not only with how much to share, 
But what are the right expectations that a pastor should have in how the people respond to the sharing? Yep. Right? Because, like you said, we don't want to center our story, and we they they are not our... Um, they're not our comforters. They're not our... They're, they don't exist to care for us. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you know, I have found myself in difficult places in life. For example, when um, a member of our family was uh, sick and uh, we had a, a baby, uh, six months old, and I was pastoring a church that was an hour from our house and... Um, my the, the person the family member who was caring for our child could no longer do that. My wife had to work, and so I was taking our baby to work out of pack and play and the whole thing in my office. And a member of the church said, "On your way to the building, stop at our house. We will take care of that child, and however long you need to be there, that's fine. On your way home, come back and." And this person, this couple did this for us for over a year. And they stepped in at a time when we, and and we don't have, my wife and I do not have any blood relatives in North Carolina. Um, And so they stepped in and were family for us at a time when we did not know what we were going to do. But I, I, I think it would have been wrong for us to expect someone right. in the community to do that for us and it would have been unfaithful i think i think to reject that to offer. say no right i mean i think because the reality is a church community is an outpost of the kingdom of god mm-hmm. and so the kingdom of god will be shalom which is about mm-hmm mutual flourishing and interdependence, right? And so I think too often, again, speaking about mainline historically white denominations, we've been aspiring to be sort of the cultural equivalent of the professor, the doctor, the therapist, the whoever, who has a separate private life and then this public role. And again, like, I don't think there's anything, I don't think there's anything wrong with that in a in those secular institutions, but that's not what we, that's not what we are. And so the idea that in all the messiness and vulnerability of that interdependence, it is harder. um, And so I can see why people like just the efficiency of the clean lines. Like let's just pay the pastor enough so that we don't ever have to worry about their childcare needs. I, but that just seems like, those are those are values from the culture that are not necessarily reflective of the way that we grow spiritually when when our lives are more in a healthy way intertwined. Yeah, for me it goes back to what you were saying a moment ago about the member of your church who said in the circle, "You guys can rest. I I, I I'm your friend. You don't have to do anything to earn." Um, you don't have to prove anything. You don't to have me. to prove anything to me, right? And so I think for me, in the back of my mind, when this couple offered to take care of our child, part of my struggle was 
will you still be able to receive me as your pastor if I expose my need? Right, because we think our value to the community lies in being givers. Yes, that you're at the top of the pyramid and you you pour out. Absolutely. Right, Mm -hmm. and I think it is hard for us in a good way Mm -hmm. to recognize that we have to be receivers too. And obviously, you know, I know of pastors who make demands of their congregations, like I need childcare, this person, you know, that's well, gross. And there are pastors and we, you know, when we have our required boundaries training, they tell us, you know, when you don't acknowledge your needs, then that's when someone has an affair, they take money, they they do things um, that are um, ethically need to be dealt with and are destructive yeah Yeah. and i think just the bottom line is how do we want people to show up in our communities we need to show up that same way so if we want people to bring their whole selves in a healthy way then we need to bring ourselves whole selves in a healthy way and we can't expect to hold everybody off at arm's length and then wonder why there's not authentic flourishing friendships and healthy community like we just we have to show up in the way that we want people to show up. And, you know, I think, and this, and we've talked about this before and it scares me, but I think it's helpful. Like, you know, if, if we're doing something as, and I notice this every time, if I'm asking the church to do something, if I don't do it, even if it's something that they will never know, they don't do it either. Mm. And if I do it, even if it's something they'll never know, like there's just much more fruitfulness. Like I just think this is a spiritual community and by God's grace and because of God's penchant for fools, like we are in a leadership capacity. And so the choices that we make have a, have an influence that goes beyond what is maybe naturally expected. So, I mean, this is, this is the thing with the gratitude challenges. I have to get on it. Or we're gonna get smashed. <laughs> That's the problem. You don't have to do anything. I know, shut up. Just leave it alone. Get behind me, you. <laughs> um, tell we're we're running late. Um, so we are preaching um, the first thing in the the first thing the first sermon in this gratitude series. And hey, is is your friend and and my revered colleague, the Reverend Albert Moses, maybe gonna do this with us? I think he's gonna join us in Excellent. this gratitude series, and That's he really- is. He is, and I've said this for many years, he is the best preacher in Charlotte Presbytery and probably the best preacher I know and the preacher I most want to be like. Yeah, I'm excited <laughs> to meet with him. So we'll, we'll share with everybody what we learn from him. Are we going to get his church to do this with us too? Probably not. <laughs> But Fair he's going to join us in the series. Fair enough. Um, so the first series, we are preaching about looking back to give thanks to God and um, really looking at the story from First Kings about Samuel raising an altar that he called Ebenezer to celebrate God uh, delivering the people in battle from the threat of the Philistines. And after that was over, Samuel made an altar in a public place and called it Ebenezer, which means my help comes from the Lord. And the spiritual practice he was instituting was God has met this need. Now let's not just move on and forget about it. Let's erect a physical object that every time we see it, we will be reminded that God was faithful to deliver us at that time. And that will help us shape 
our expectations and manage our fear and anxiety and move forward with faithfulness were the problems that we face in the present or in the future. So the, the gloss is when we ask people to be practice gratitude intentionally, um, we want to start by encouraging people to actually look not, not just around you at what's happening right now, but look back in your life and notice the places where God's goodness intervened and give thanks for that. Sort of make an Ebenezer altar in your journal or wherever and and not just thinking about what's happening right now, but also what has happened in the past. And some of us are old. Some of us are half a century old. That? So we have a lot I to look that. back. I know you should. <laughs> I you should. Felt that. You should thank the Lord for your long, long life. You just went there. You are delightful. I'm delightful. Aren't I so friends? Thanks for listening. If you would like to find out more about what's happening at Derida Presbyterian Church, that's D E R I T A, pres.org is their website. If you want to participate in the gratitude challenge on Say that with side. Joy. Say it on with joy. On that side. I won't. If you want to help uh, Derida Prez and Yolando make me suffer, then you can submit your gratitude lists to um, the web, the email address sec, that's secretary, sec, as in secretary, sec at Derida Prez. I already spelled it, dot org. Um, you can make a list. You can send a photo of your journal page or whatever and just tally it. Um, if you can count it up, that would be nice. Um, and you can watch them on YouTube and all the places go to their Facebook page, worship with them at 10 30, whatever. There's lots of great stuff going on. And if you want to find out what's happening at the Grove, Wait, you can why go did to your our website because we're running out of time. Yeah, but you went from, okay, yeah, there's Yolanda at Deride and you know all what? the things. You and... know what? You're welcome for doing the tag every week. Every week I do this. Would you like to do this? No, you're great. Go. Go. If you'd like to find out what's happening at the Grove, you can check out our website, www.thegrovecharlotte.org. You can watch old sermons on our podcast, the Grove Church Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever. Or you can check them out on our YouTube channel and you can worship with us in person at 10 o'clock in your mask or online without a mask or anything else, we don't care, on our Facebook page where it's live streamed. And if you want to submit your gratitude to on the side of the Grove, um, you can send an email to admin, A-D-M-I-N, like administration, admin at thegrovecharlotte.org. You can type in a list or take a picture and send it in with a tally mark. Please, please, please help me make Yolando run. He's going to run, and that means we're going to all have him in our lives for years and years and years to come. Exercise is going to prolong his life. This is going to mean that he will be around to dance at Matthew's wedding and at the wedding of Matthew's children. So if you want Yolando to live a long and healthy life, then please, please help me help him and submit your gratitude list to admin at the Grove charlotte.org it sounds like one of those commercials where they're playing you know in the arms of the (laughs) (laughs) please please help me it's like please help me save his life we'll run together it'll be great thanks for listening we'll talk to you next week